Sergio, if you like what we're doing here, if you support the show and you want to give support to the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. And if you do so, we'll provide you some exclusive content and some things that uh, others aren't going to get when you get it. So support us by going to Patreon. Yahweh. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Salem, welcome to Let's Talk Native. Today, Fed Wreck in Hawaii. <laughs> you know, I've talked about this, uh, this issue before. And it's we need to talk about it again, because during the Obama administration and in fact, even going before Obama, there, there was an effort by the Hawaiian, uh, the senators from Hawaii, uh, you know, um, was it in a way? Yeah, I guess it would be an, an, uh, Daniel Kaku and Daniel in a way they they thought that the best way to accommodate native Hawaiians was to turn them into Indians. <laughs> So this idea of redefining and uh, what, what, a, what a Hawaiian, a native Hawaiian was, um, they just figured, well, we've been doing this Indian model for so long, we'll just plug them into that. The problem is that native Hawaiians weren't crazy about this idea. And so a battle kind of has ensued. And this was a, a, a one of the priorities that Obama tried to push through now, this is Obama, Biden, with uh, Sally Jewell as the, uh, the Interior Secretary. Uh, they actually had a whole series of hearings you know, across Hawaii, um, and they did it on, on not, I don't know if every island, but there was like, um, I think, a dozen or maybe 15 hearings that they had where they brought in somebody from the Interior Department um, to have this, kind of, well, basically hear from the, from the people. And the overwhelming majority, and I mean almost nobody who showed up at these hearings, and you have to understand, some of these places in Hawaii don't exactly have, you know, highways, you know, delivering people to these, uh, you know, to these hearing sites. So some of these people had to, you know, pack up and make a, make a day of it, travel over rough roads, you know, coming from some of the remote places that they lived to, to even attend these things. And... There were some really, really impassioned uh, uh, comments from from the public, and and most of them all came down to this whole thing about you. You don't send the Interior Department here; you send the State Department here. We're we're a nation, we're a kingdom, and that's where a lot of the conversation get, you know kept coming back to. And so the, the, these hearings could not have been more clear about the sentiment of the Hawaiian people, the people who live in Hawaii. Now I gotta say. They actually had hearings on the continent as well. So in some of these areas where they had these Hawaiian civic organizations, places like Las Vegas and San Antonio, you know, many of the major cities where there's a fairly, you know, 
robust Hawaiian uh, population. Ironically, they decided they would try to host these uh, these hearings at native casinos. It's, it's almost like we're going to we're going to we're going to even cast this thing in terms of the venue uh, in these lavish casino <laughs> uh, atmospheres to try to convince the Hawaiians that this was best for them. But but even the the hearings that were held uh, on the continent side uh, really all, all demonstrated the same thing. Now, the way that the Obama administration offset this, they said, well, we're not only going to have these hearings, but we're going to have, um, we're going to be receiving comments from the public, you know, from, from Hawaiians uh, via email. And as it turns out, they put very, very little weight to the people who would actually take, a do take time out of their lives, travel to these hearings, give their impassioned testimony. They put more weight on, on what they called their, their letter writing. And many of these were like... <laughs> They were like form letters that that people were told to you know just sign sign them. And so, when the Obama administration offered their assessment on on the on the comment period, they said, "Oh, we had an overwhelming majority of people who who wanted uh, you know wanted federal recognition for Native Hawaiians, tantamount you know kind of like an Indian tribe." And of course, that wasn't even true. And they put much more weight on the letter writing than they did on, on, on human beings going to a microphone at a hearing. So, you know, this is where the tension was. Now, Obama didn't pull off what he was trying to do, which was to turn half a million Hawaiians into essentially um, Indians by the, uh, the definition of the, of the United States. <clears throat> he didn't pull it off. But it might be a good time for me to kind of walk this back a little bit. And let me, let me talk a little bit about what FedRec is and how it came to be. You know, of, of course, we as Native people, just like uh, the people of Hawaii, we existed before white people showed up. <laughs> we, we, we had our governments. We had our, our culture. We had, you know, all of the things that you would associate with a distinct sovereign people before the first white person showed up. And when white people did show up, we maintained that for, you know, against tremendous odds, you know, against pressure by the churches, pressure by, you know, by militaries, whether from a native standpoint, we, you know, we saw massacres by the Dutch, you know, by the, by the French, by the English, by, by, you know, the Americans and there were countries like like Germany who sent in you know uh, soldiers to, to to participate in some of these battles. I mean, the amount of European aggression that Native people felt uh, in our homelands was was incredible. It was just, just absolutely. Oh, I left out Spain. Did I leave out Spain? How could I leave out Spain? <laughs> yeah, Spain was among the most aggressive, and you know. So this is uh, this is what the experience was now. <clears throat> As much as our people experienced genocide for, for over 500 years, and when I say our people, I mean Native people, people indigenous to the, to the lands of this, what people call the Western Hemisphere. That still doesn't include Hawaii, because Hawaii not part of, <laughs> is not part of this. I don't even know if they were actually considered part of this hemisphere. But anyway, but anyway, what we experienced in terms of this genocide, we we survived it. 
Not all of our people did. We we lost, you know, our population was was probably eliminated to the tune of 95%, at least 95%, by some estimates as, as high as 98%. In the 1930s, our population was down to uh, like 300,000. Total number of native people living in the continental United States, down to 300,000. And that may have been down from, you know, by some estimates, 100 million, 100 million native people reduced down to... Uh, down to 300,000. And I think at the lowest point, it was down to a quarter of a million. So we were talking about a people who, yes, we did survive, but barely. And so how would we survive? And, and what would be left of the people who, who did survive? Well, many of us survived by withdrawing and, and having very little to do with, with the United States, with the states, and, and that kind of thing. But one of the things that, that I think is interesting is how did the United States um, characterize us. Well, in the U.S. Constitution, we are mentioned three times. We are mentioned in, I think, Article 1 of, of the Constitution in the apportionment clause for both a fixed tax and a direct tax, I should say, and for representation in Congress. And we're mentioned in there. We're mentioned when they talk about that these taxes and, and representation shall be apportioned um, according to the number of all free persons and then including in that number they said three-fifths of uh you know and when i say all free persons they, they also meant people who were only termed in some sort of indentured servitude but uh, they were still considered free persons i guess <laughs> but they said in three-fifths of uh of all others you know meaning you know uh, slaves but excluding and they they defined us as indians not taxed so we weren't and of course, none of us were really, were taxed. So I mean, I don't understand the knack, not taxed. That's not really that well explained. Um, but but again, excluding Indians, not taxed. So we were not part of the U.S. Constitution. We were we were not represented by Congress. We were not included in the apportionment for taxation or for representation. And that's the that's the U.S. Constitution. So in after the Civil War. When the, the 14th Amendment is passed, after the 13th Amendment, which, which ends slavery, they passed the 14th Amendment, which is supposed to clear up the citizenship issue. But it was really directed towards, uh, towards former slaves. And it basically says that all persons born uh, within the continental United States and under U.S. jurisdiction uh, are considered uh, U.S. citizens. That didn't include us. You know, for, for one thing, Many of us were still born or were lived on our lands, which were was still not firmly established as part of the United States, and, and still isn't to this day. <laughs> but we certainly weren't under the under their jurisdiction. So the Fourteenth Amendment didn't apply to us either. So we in in eighteen sixty eight we still were separate and distinct from the United States and from United States citizenship. So this, you know, this actually causes some, some trouble, especially when it comes to, you know, the United States and their so-called trust responsibility to Native people that they took on with, with certain land transactions, you know, sessions of lands and, and that kind of thing. But there was always this, this question, well, what is the status of a Native person, you know, as far as the United States is concerned? But it was never really cleared up, cleared up. In 1924, the United States passes the Indian Citizenship Act. 
And in this act, without application, without, you know, us asking, you know, through treaty or request of any form, the United States passes a law and says that they declared, and this was the House and the Senate, so, the, so Congress declared that all Native people born in the United States uh, are U.S. citizens. There is a proviso in there that says nothing in this act shall um, shall affect you know our our tribal property or, or you know our our personal or our, our tribal property, whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> well, I don't know what tribal property is or, or possessions. But so they passed this thing in 1924, but we didn't ask for it. And, and frankly, in 1924, and I've talked about this on the show before, in 1924, this idea of a country stripping away a people's national character or, or cultural character and then implanting theirs upon or, or, or uh, you know, imposing their national character or, or culture or whatever on them, the rest of the world was already calling this a war crime. A prosecutable war crime. And this was based on some of what was happening in Europe. The idea of elimination, you know, this idea of ethnically cleansing, you know, regions of, of, of Europe, primarily Europe. So while the world is calling this very act a, a war crime, the United States is just, no, we're, we're all in, we're doing this. And of course, they were under, the United States was under no scrutiny. I mean, the United States was already getting away in 1924. <laughs> we'll go back and talk about Hawaii uh, in a moment, but the United States is already getting away literally with murder, but also with, with genocide in, in any measure of it. But in 1924, the word genocide didn't exist yet. But denationalization, which essentially is the precursor to what would be called genocide later on, denationalization was considered a war crime. But that's exactly what the United States did in 1924. I mean, the, the sad part is many Native people today will, will cite 1924, oh, that's when we got to be U.S. citizens. Uh, no, you didn't get to be. They just declared, they just tried to make you. So you had to decide, as far as I'm concerned, we all have to decide, do we accept that imposition of U.S. citizenship or do we try to maintain our distinction as Native people? And I'll get into how that those things are, are mutually exclusive. but uh, So that's 1924. Now, in 1934, they passed the Indian Reorganization Act because they know they haven't really solved the problem with their whole Citizenship Act from 10 years before that. They, they know they haven't solved the problem. So they passed this Indian Reorganization Act. And what this does is it clears up how the United States defines a quote-unquote Indian. I mean, it's not it's, its sole intent. You know, some of the the intentions of the law was to create a little more self, you know, more self-governance, uh, you know, don't even throw the word sovereignty into this, but, but self-governance and self-determination. Now, the problem is this law required native peoples to vote whether to accept and to be an IRA, an Indian Reorganization Act people or not. And what came along with that was, Clear oversight by the federal government in terms of its interior department, Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the like. But it also had in its agenda, even though they talked about this idea of self-governance, they wanted to define what that government was. So the, what the Bureau of Indian Affairs was going to be charged with is creating constitutions for all of these nations that wanted to accept the, uh, the uh, Indian Reorganization Act. So essentially eliminating traditional governance. Now, many native territories rejected this. 
And some of them didn't say one way or the other, but the, the assumption was that once this law was passed, that the United States could redefine. Now, in redefining what a Native person was, it was really clear what they were saying. They said the, the United States recognizes their Indians as tribes, bands, or nations of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. So that's 1934. Now, there's nothing that suggests, even with the passage of that, that law, that Native people uh, consented to it. So this idea that, that any Native territories consented to being subordinate to the laws of the United States is uh, it, it's, it's a huge assumption. It's an imposition that only one side of the ledger uh, is checked off, and that's the United States. So that's... To the, the definition of a Native person today, a, 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 a Native American or American Indian, as the United States defines, uh, defines us, is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. So they took the word nation and they reduced it to, be, to being a synonym to a tribe or a band. So, again, this whole idea of nationhood, to be clear, they weren't recognizing native peoples as nation states because what they were characterizing native peoples are uh, as were subordinate to the laws of the United States. So essentially this was to try to put a further, uh, a, a more solid stamp on the Indian citizenship act and saying native people are, are, are Americans, but we're going to allow them to create, to, to be organized as native peoples Um and be members of those organizations. We're going to recognize their membership of their and of their tribal enrollment. Uh, but to be clear, they're, they're U.S. citizens. So that's what came in 1934. So, all right, now let's back up to Hawaii again. So, in 1893, the United States illegally occupies Hawaii. The Hawaiian Kingdom is recognized throughout the world since since 1848. The 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 Hawaiian Kingdom has been internationally recognized as an independent, sovereign state. In fact, in Hawaii, they actually celebrate the day that, that Europe you know, first made this, uh, this, this distinction, and they call it their Independence Day. You know, I, I've talked to some Hawaiian people, and as much as they want to celebrate that day, the idea of that being their Independence Day is is totally inaccurate because they didn't win their independence on, uh, you know, in 1848, they were already an independent. What that was, was an acknowledgement. I mean, they, they, they should call it recognition day or, or something else. I don't know, but um, it is celebrated by Hawaiian people and in, uh, in Hawaii as their independence day when the rest of the world recognized them. And it's interesting because this would be the first nation state that, the European, you know, the international community, which was really kind of based out of Europe, that would be recognized that had not been colonized and had not been under some sort of European rule at some point. This was the first nation state that would that would uh, enjoy that distinction. So, but in nineteen or in before the end of the century, the United States would just say, "No, we're taking it." And and how did that happen? Well, it happened because the Hawaiian Kingdom did allow non-native Hawaiians to become Hawaiian subjects. So if you were born in Hawaii, 
whether you're white or, or, or not, I mean, or Native Hawaiian or not, you could be registered as a Hawaiian subject. So there were other countries also that had some of their nationals who lived in Hawaii, including Japan, uh, uh, some China, other, uh, other places. Uh, and once those people, you know, had children and, and, and I, don't, I assume they could have become uh, Hawaiian subjects without being born there. I, I don't know exactly, but, uh, but there would come a time that there would be many other ethnicities living in Hawaii that were Hawaiian subjects, but again, were not necessarily native Hawaiians. And as money would pour into Hawaii, in, especially for agriculture, you know, uh, uh, the Dole family, you know, we, we still know Dole pineapples and bananas today. That family would, would end up having a huge investment, especially in sugar production. So there would be a, a lot of non-native Hawaiian, Hawaiian subjects living in Hawaii. And their financial interests were, were always geared towards the relationship with the United States. And you would actually see what, what now is, is defined as gentrification. Native Hawaiians were being gentrified in their, in their own homelands by Americans, Europeans, Asians, you know, and others. So that's how you would have a, a situation where you would have wealthy white men backed by the United States that would simply say, we're taking over Hawaii. It wasn't necessarily the United States at first. But they would use uh, the fact that there was a, a Hawaiian marine vessel there, a, a naval vessel there. And they literally held the queen hostage and they took over the kingdom of Hawaii and said, the kingdom of Hawaii is no more. We, us white men, <laughs> we're forming the, the Republic of Hawaii. And they were backed by the military of the United States to do this. Now, this was not necessarily widely accepted by everybody but there was it didn't in, invoke the the international outrage that it should have and so this crew of white men who had taken over uh, over the, the basically had um it was a coup against the hawaiian kingdom and they would replace the kingdom with their new form of government uh this this was a, really an international scandal in fact, the United States, through you know the U.S. president Grover Cleveland, really had some problems with this, and and he wanted to back the Queen to regain the kingdom. His concern was he didn't want all of these Americans who were Hawaiian subjects to be executed for treason. You know, to, as 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 this whole thing would play out, the kingdom would never be restored, and then there would be an attempt by this crew of white men to ask to be annexed, ask for, the, the, for Hawaii to be annexed by the United States. Now, they weren't even, even recognized as, leg, as a legitimate government. And there was no proper, um, you know, any kind of referendum or anything else that would justify this request for annexation. So the annexation treaty was rejected. It, it never did, um, it was never uh, accepted by the president of the United States. It was never confirmed through the, you know, through the, I think the supermajority of the, of the Senate, none of that stuff. But what did happen is that through a joint resolution of Congress, and I think this was through the, uh, the uh, president William McKinley, they decided, no, we're just going to take Hawaii. 
we're we're gonna we're gonna we are going to annex Hawaii without an annexation treaty and without the the process laid out in the U.S. Constitution. So through a so through a simple majority and through a joint resolution of Congress, which isn't supposed to have this kind of legal this this kind of legal or legislative weight, they just illegally occupied Hawaii. So that's what that's what trans, transpired in uh, in the the late 19th century. Um, and that's how the United States would come to claim the whole, the Hawaiian, you know, basically, um, undermine the, the Hawaiian kingdom and take over Hawaii. Now for a couple of generations since then, most of the Hawaiian people were not taught the truth. I mean, I think many of many the Hawaiian people at the time, as as much as they protested and they actually signed petitions demanding the, you know, to have the kingdom restored, that effort would fade, and it would essentially be you know lost into the dustbin of history, so to speak. But in the '70s, when the Native sovereignty movement began to to really kick up a lot of stir over a lot of these issues, the um, uh, the people of Hawaii would would relearn this history. So that's what we'll talk about. We're, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about the sovereignty movement as it as it comes into Hawaii and how it brings us to where we're at now. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, I want to uh, give a shout out and a thanks to my uh, to my sponsors, Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses, uh, Eric White and ERW Enterprises, and the good folks at Grand River Enterprises. They are our main sponsors. And of course, I also extend my gratitude to those who help out from time to time. Guys like Ed and Cindy and, um, well, and, and, and our... Our guys who provided us with a brand new microphone, <laughs> Julian, Travis, and Jake. I want to thank all of you guys for supporting the program. All right, let me get back to it. So, once we come out of you know both the civil rights you know era and you know and then the sovereignty movement, native sovereignty pushback out of the seventies, more and more Hawaiians started becoming more aware of what how badly they were were duped. And and it's not a completely bloodless coup, by the way. There, you know, there there were there were were acts of violence, and of course, the racism that the the native Hawaiian people would were already feeling before the, the, the this coup would only increase under more and more U.S. rule, and of course, their economies would be shifted towards you know completely taken over by you know american investment and and other foreign investment to to change you know what their crops were you know what their trade was going to be i mean the hawaii became inundated both from a tourism standpoint and and i and i can't leave out 
the the fact that there was a a uh, a naval vessel there in the first place was already showing how much the U.S. was beginning to use Hawaii uh, for military purposes, and that's essentially part of the reason that the annexation or, or this illegal occupation would happen in the first place. The United States was beginning its um, its imperialism beyond the continent of, of of North America and pushing not only into into Hawaii but the Spanish-American War would, uh, would would ensue, and and Hawaii would be a big part of being uh, the um, the naval base, Pearl Harbor, the naval naval base for the United States. I mean, so this is all part of you know what was was built up. But the Hawaiian people became aware of this now, and and it's it it almost seems it would seem strange to many people that that there would have been a, several generations that just completely became silent on this issue. But the current generations and, and the more recent generations were were not so much, and so th this idea of learning learning about this became uh, you know became a big part of who they were and asserting who they are as Ganaka Maoli as as distinct Hawaiian people. Now, in during the Clinton administration in 1993, there would actually be. A what was considered the, the apology resolution, and this was again a joint resolution of Congress. Although this one was was passed by by more than a you know a, a simple majority, um, the House and the Senate would pass this resolution acknowledging the wrongdoing that the United States had committed against Hawaii in the in the toppling of the Hawaiian Kingdom, and this was signed by uh, by the U.S. President Clinton, and so th this was like an acknowledgement. That that the Hawaiian people have been wrong. No reparations involved here, although there has been efforts through various means and funding mechanisms to create some level of um, uh, of recognizing the distinction of Hawaiian people. Now, and this is where it starts to get murky, because even things that were being put in place that were geared towards perhaps you know. Uh, lands and land use and homes. Some people are saying, you know, this might be violating the U.S. Constitution to treat Hawaiian people different than uh, than other American citizens. And so this this began the effort to say the way we can protect Hawaiian people is if we recognize them in the same way that that American Indians are recognized. So this whole idea of Fed Rec, and I and I do spell it F E D W R E C K, and I actually you know. You know, it's always been referred to loosely as FedRec, as in REC, but understanding the destruction that comes along with federal recognition, both from Native people here in the United States, within the continent, I would say, and what was being suggested to um, or recommended for the, the Hawaiian people. It, it was clear that this was about destroying something and trying to sweeten it as, enough to, to lord... Hawaiian people into the whole thing. Now, one of the things that, that I have to address with this whole myth of federal recognition is that this allows Native people to be to have dual citizenship. This is one I, I just addressed this this week on a, on a Facebook post. This whole idea of dual citizenship, I, I, we we pretend that that's a real thing, but it isn't. I mean, the United States doesn't recognize us as citizens of our of our nations, 
No, they don't. I mean, they don't. They they won't recognize our right to produce a passport or, or any of that stuff. So they, what they recognize us as are members of tribal organizations. Remember that I told you they you know the whole idea of the Indian Reorganization Act was about allowing us to organize, not to become nation states, but to organize. So um, and organize under their <laughs> under their parameters for organization, basically. So. The United States doesn't recognize as um, it doesn't recognize me as a citizen of the Mohawk Nation. In fact, they don't even recognize the Mohawk Nation. What they did is they 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 come up with these these mechanisms to recognize tribes, and those tribes, in fact, they would split up nations. You know, so you'd have the the um, Saint Regis Mohawk tribe in Aquasasne. Um, of course, that's that's actually the only group of Mohawks that the federal government recognizes through their recognition process. Look, they recognize us as Mohawks. They have to because we're still here. But they don't recognize us as these tribes that uh, that that they tried to create with the Indian Reorganization Act. And what they did with others, like the Oneidas, for instance, there's the Oneida Indians of New York, and then there's the Oneida Tribal Wisconsin. They've done this with so many uh, distinct Native peoples where they created the parameters for what they would be recognized in terms of their tribe and of course part of this would also be driven by the fact that we are split up geographically you know through the removal periods and, and pushing us into into different areas and whether we all went or didn't go seneca nation for instance you got the the seneca nation of indians seneca nation then you got the tonawanda band of senecas and then out in kansas i think there's the um the cayuga senecas or seneca cayugas so i mean the, this is how convoluted this whole idea of federal recognition it doesn't just recognize and reduce somebody from a nation down to a tribe it, it starts to separate it which is also part of the plan with with hawaii and i'll get into that a little bit more but so when obama was in office with, with biden as his vice president and sally jewell as the interior secretary there became this big push to try to create a streamlined process that would just flip a switch and turn Native Hawaiians, half a million people who, who identify themselves as, as Native Hawaiians, turn them into, into you know, federally recognized tribes, Hawaiian tribes. Now, it wasn't necessarily going to create one. You know, there was, there was already, you know, conversation about how they would recognize tribes in each island and they would separate. So there could have been as many as a dozen Native Hawaiian tribes it would still be a half a million people in total, but they would be, you know, sometimes pitted against each other for funding and for resources and that kind of stuff. It was going to be a complete debacle. And by and large, the vast majority of Hawaiian people opposed it. Now, not all of them did, though. Some saw the opportunity in this thing. Oh, we could become a tribal organization and get federal funding and we could and we would be able to create all these, you know, these businesses and and business opportunities. We would be able to, you know, again, millions and millions of dollars are, are tied in with federal recognition. And there were opportunistic people, some who were already perhaps already had some familiarity with the way you know, the federal recognition system worked with with. Native people, Native Americans, as they were, as we were called, you know, so there were a lot of, you know, carpetbaggers, even amongst the, uh, the, the Native Hawaiian population who said, yeah, we want this. We want this. The overwhelming majority of people rejected. It. Now, keep in mind, while this conversation about Fed rec 
uh, yes, or yay or nay is going on. There is still a growing movement to for the restoration of the Hawaiian kingdom. And that's that gets twisted into this thing. And, you know, some are saying, well, yeah, this would be a step towards getting the, the Hawaiian kingdom recognized. No, it isn't. This would be totally undermining and gutting that because there is nothing that is, that is there's no part of federal recognition as a tribe that could be viewed as a pathway to recognition as a nation state. So the effort of, you know, some of these really dedicated and committed people who have done everything from, you know, bringing out the Kuwait petitions for, you know, that showed the resistance to the annexation in the first place and, uh, and, you know, protesting right from the beginning. There, there's so much effort in terms of education, traveling the world. Some of these guys, Leon Su and, uh, and, and some of these guys who have, you know, traveled, uh, Keanu Sai, traveled the world to say, look, you countries, you let us down. You recognize the Hawaiian kingdom and you, and you did nothing while the, while the United States illegally occupied us. So this is the kind of thing that had been, been going on. And there were scholars and there were legal scholars, international lawyers who looked at this and said, you know, the Hawaiian kingdom, the, the, the Hawaiian people have, a, have a, a right, a legitimate right. I mean, there was even a period of time where the UN was, was um, involved in decolonization. The idea that countries in South America and Africa that were that were colonized by European powers or American powers. No, no, take it back. Only European powers. The United States was never the subject of any of these, this decolonization. Well, I, I guess we could argue that once the Philippines um, be, would become independent from the United States after they took it from, <laughs> from the Spanish. We could argue that, I guess. But... Hawaii was never even, uh, you know, was never on the radar. So this is the effort that's been going on. So while there's a conversation over here about whether Native Hawaiians should accept being reduced to a tribe, and then the others who saw the opportunity in that, while that conversation is going on, there's another conversation that's that's happening with with people who are becoming very well educated and and charged about the restoration of the Hawaiian kingdom. And those two things cannot, they are mutually exclusive. And, and again, I'll go back to this idea of dual citizenship. This would not create an opportunity for Hawaiians to, to still make the case for being um, Hawaiian kingdom subjects and be U.S. citizens. No, it, it, it's, it's either or. I mean, you, you can't do both. And, and this is where Native people throughout the world, indigenous people throughout the world are, are struggling. Even with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it stays away from the idea of any of us reclaiming our, our nationhood our, to become nation states. It, it avoids that completely. And in fact, if anything, the only time the word sovereignty is even mentioned in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is when they're trying to assure nation states who are being compelled to recognize the rights of indigenous peoples. Nothing in this declaration was meant to infringe on their, on their sovereignty. I mean, everything has been about infringing on ours, but nothing in the de declaration was intended to, um, um, to challenge the sovereignty of nation states that have indigenous peoples um, still, uh, still living amongst them. <laughs> so this is where this, this, this whole thing, you know, had, had gotten 
um, convoluted because there were, there were there were people trying to m- mix messages. They were trying to say, well, you know, if we get fe- recognized, uh, you know, federally recognized, and they don't, they never fully, they, they never complete that sentence. They never say, if we get recognized as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States, then what? They, they, you know, because you can't complete that sentence and say, well, if we get recognized as a as a tribe then we can still use that as a pathway to, to be recognized as a nation? No, that's not the way it works. I mean, we are still in the midst of, of many challenges on, you know, across the continent, and U.S. and Canada, on what it means to be a Native person. And our identities have been, have, have been trampled upon. Look, you know, we are mocked with, with things like mascots, we, you know, we have politicians who, who just absolutely cannot recognize that we don't consider ourselves Americans. I mean, I, there was a major demonstration, you know, that or there, there have been major demonstrations in Hawaii where the, the signs were held up. And in fact, I, I posted some on my uh, on my Facebook page. You know, we are not Americans. That's that's what the Hawaiian people are saying. We are not Americans. Well, if you accept federal recognition as, as a tribe that's exactly what they're going see this whole effort and they're going to throw some you know they're going to put some sugar to this they're going to say yeah, look there's there's funding involved we can we we know that we can protect um you know the crown lands that, that, that you're you're tr- still trying to maintain we we know that we can do all of these things if you're recognized as a tribe because we can hold that land in trust for you yeah, well, yeah, that's what they claim to do for Native people in the U.S. and Canada, that they're holding our land for our use, that they hold it, that they own the title to it. Well, see, that's what's being offered up here. And, you know, of course, they're, they're talking about, you know, all the upsides to being a tribe. Well, if you go across the United States, you only have to see th- that we top every list you don't want to be on top. We The highest suicide rate, the highest poverty rate, the highest unemployment rate. Look, in every one of these things that I'm saying, that's what the Hawaiian people are experiencing now in Hawaii. The Kanakamali are, are experiencing all of these things. Drug, drug and uh, alcohol abuse, teen pregnancy, you know, poverty, unemployment, um, the, 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 the shortest life expectancy. All of those things that we experience with this idea of federal recognition and the trust responsibility of the United States, we experience all these things, but that's what the Hawaiian people are experiencing today. Homelessness. Now, keep in mind, when I talk about half a million people that would identify themselves as Native Hawaiians, only about 25 to 30% of them live in Hawaii. Why is that? Why would they leave their homeland? Because they were forced to. Because of poverty. Look, you have a, you have a high incidence of, of homelessness in Hawaii, but many of those people could not afford to live there. Why? Because the tourism industry and the military industrial complex that took over, uh, over, over Hawaii. It, it forced everything skyrocketing. Look, if you're in the military, then you, you're, you get a housing allowance, allowance whatever that is going to be. If, it, if, it's, if it's well above what a Native Hawaiian could, could afford, well, that's not your problem. You're, you're military. So it drove up the cost of housing. And of course, there's also you know, other perks that come with being military in terms of you know, commissary and what you can buy. And in and, and, and meantime, the price of everything else is going up. People don't realize that this thing called the Jones Act means that everything that goes into Hawaii has to come to the, to the mainland, has to come to the continent first. Same thing with Puerto Rico. 
So you would think a a territory a, a uh, that's in the middle of the Pacific, right along trade routes, you would think, man, they would have a lot of cheap stuff coming their way, especially that close to Asia. No, everything that's got a, everything that, that gets imported into Hawaii has to come to the mainland first, and that was some piece of legislation supposed to protect longshoremen or something like that. It, it, it just and it that means a gallon of milk costs seven dollars in uh, in Hawaii, you know. So what what do you what the average person can afford uh, in the United States they they couldn't afford it in Hawaii. That's why seventy percent of the of of the 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 population the seventy percent of Native Hawaiians live in the mainland, and so what would that mean with federal recognition? Would you have these large groups of tribalized, you know, or recognized um, Native Hawaiians who have no land base? Because, or, 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 and if the belief is that once this happens, that all these Hawaiians could go back to their homeland, no, they couldn't. Their lands have been taken up and been swallowed up. And you think some little set-asides, you know, through a, through a tribal, uh, through the Bureau of Interference is going to somehow afford these people with, 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 with new homes and everything else? Look, this, this whole thing is a debacle. And that's why the push now under this new administration, you see, this, this is where, where I think we have to really scrutinize what is going to be the Biden agenda. Because it sounds to me he's picking up everything that Obama did. And... And this is, this was one of them. And now you're going to have a native person who has totally embraced federal recognition in, in, you know, as far as the, the assimilation patterns that go along with it in, uh, in Deb Hallen. I, I don't, I have no reason to believe that she is going to recognize what the native Hawaiians recognize that they don't want this. So this becomes more problematic. And, you know, and this effort is starting, is essentially going to start at the beginning of an administration, not somewhere in the midst where there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that, that you know, for the, the Biden administration has to address. But when they're putting their list of things together, and you can bet some of those people who are looking, looking to cash out with federal recognition, or cash in, I should say, they're going to put this high on their priority list. And and I've listened to, to folks like uh, like like Joe Biden talk about you know how committed he was in working in the Senate with with guys like yeah, Akaka in, in in a way. So this is a major problem, and this is what the Hawaiian people are facing, and and it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But you know we we see all of this conflict, and look. look there, there, there's all kinds of battles happening over, over lands and land use in Hawaii already. You know, not just Mauna Kea and, and the effort, you know, to, to take that, what, what the Hawaiians consider a, a sacred site and build these huge telescopes, you know, there. But just basic housing. And look, there's already been a lot of corruption associated with, these, with the housing programs that were de designed through what is primarily a state agency, the, the uh, Office of Hawaiian Affairs, which is a state of Hawaii um, or, uh, agency. And to the extent that it's tried to do some things to provide housing, you already see it rife with, with corruption. I mean, some of the very people who are pushing the hardest right now for federal recognition are the ones who've, who've been doing quite well under the, under the state agency. And of course, it leaves Native Hawaiians just like native people in uh, on the continent, should they vote in elections? 
you know, do, do they go along with, with, you know, as an American in the meantime? And, and what does that mean? Look, and, and I got into this, I got into this with some, some folks on Facebook who were saying, well, we still see an opportunity in voting for this or voting for that. Yeah, but you're you're acknowledging you, that this imposed U.S. citizenship. Is, how does that how does that uh, jive with with, you know, the, the work to restore the Hawaiian kingdom? And I talked to guys like Leon Su and who was the, the foreign minister of the Hawaiian kingdom, foreign affairs minister. And uh, yeah, and yeah, Keanu Sai and some of the people who've been so instrumental in trying to push for this restoration, they're not they're not telling people to vote in U.S. elections or Hawaiian elections. No, and and so this is where I get this whole thing gets convoluted. And, and trust me, this push for FedRec is going to be pushed very very hard, and there and it might be packaged up in a, in a way that relies on the number of Hawaiian people who live. Uh, on the continent side to offer them all kinds of goodies in this thing. And so what you're going to have is the, is the native Hawaiians, the people living in Hawaii, the people who've been endured, you know, over a century of, of illegal occupation and, and, and subjugation, essentially, they're going to be, it's going to be a, struggle, a tough battle because I think there are people living both on the U S on the continent side and some of the opportunistic people uh, in uh, living in Hawaii who are going to figure out this is a way to cash out. Now, the final thing I got to mention is now the, now the whole idea of casinos is being floated around too. See, during the, when Obama was um, talking about federal recognition, it was clear uh, or it seemed clear that, that this would not involve, you know, opening, uh, opening of casinos because the state of Hawaii doesn't allow casinos. So uh, according to the Cabazon ruling in, uh, 1988 or whatever it was um, that there wouldn't, if the tribe, if the state doesn't have gaming, then the tribes can't do gaming. Now, I don't know what's happened to change that. I don't know if Hawaii adopted some, uh, some new legislation as a state, but now all of a sudden there's a lot of conversation about, well, if we're federally recognized, we could open up a casino. So this is becoming, and I'm not, you know, flat out condemning, you know, native territories that, that have done casinos. But I'm not a big fan because it turns into into very much the tail wagging the dog, and we've seen it everywhere. Even here in Seneca Nation, you know, the, we we've seen how gaming has changed government. It didn't it didn't provide all of the the answers, everything people thought it would provide. If anything, it's caused even more conflict with with the states. Clearly, Seneca's are uh, at war with New York State over gaming, uh, and even with a new. Native Interior Secretary, there's nothing, I've heard nothing that suggests that she's prepared to address the, the problems, you know, the of over, over aggressive states with, uh, with, with Native territories doing gaming. So throw this into the mix too. Again, again something that, that is probably being offered up to sweeten the pot, so to speak, but something that everything that I've heard from Native Hawaiians is no, we don't want, we don't want casinos we don't want to be in, in the casino industry look if anything they wish they could reduce tourism now I, I granted i know that there are native hawaiians who are employed in the in the tourism industry but when they assess the two biggest negative impacts to their lives and that this includes the the, the native hawaiians who live in the continent too because they know what drove them off their lands they attribute it to the tourism the, the tourism the tourist industry 
and the military industrial complex that exists there. If they could have their way, they would uh, they would reduce both. And and frankly, if they were ever successful in restoring, uh, if they are successful, which I hope they are, in restoring true sovereignty to the Hawaiian kingdom, I'm not saying it, it has to wipe out the tourism industry or the, the U.S. military presence there, but they certainly do need to make sure that they're that they're paid, and and look part of you know leasing space you know to, to both to you know, the, the tourism industry and and the military could be a large foundation of their uh, of their financial independence. I, I know it doesn't sound so way, but but it would be much better than them trying to go wholesale into the into the and turn turning Hawaii into some sort of gaming you know. Uh, you know Island pleasure island, I guess, in terms of gaming. So this is this is this is coming down, folks. So I think, and I'm going to probably talk about this more. I'll I'll try to get some of the some of my friends from Hawaii to join me on uh, on future broadcasts. But this is a big one, and it was big when Obama was trying to do it, and it may be even bigger now that Biden's trying to do it. And 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 I again, it concerns me that there may be a native person in the Interior Department that maybe maybe attempting to facilitate this. Well, certainly she is. Sally Jewell, she got she got ridiculed when she was out in Hawaii. She didn't show up in most of these hearings. But they had a representative show up. But she was not very well embraced. Like I said, they said, you send the State Department, you can keep the Interior Department. That's what, that's what the Native Hawaiians were saying. In fact, some of this got kicked off because of that, that very claim and that very request. So we'll keep, we'll keep tabs on this and uh, I'll you know, keep you informed as this thing goes forward. But know that FedRec in Hawaii is, is not all that it's being dressed up to be by, by the Biden administration. So we'll see how that challenge goes. Thanks for listening. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.